Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth and all the things that Jesus has told us. Uh, help us this morning as we, as we again consider the instructions uh, given to Timothy and by extension to other church leaders and, and frankly by extension onto Christian men and women. And I pray that you would help us to, to see ourselves in the light of your word, that we may repent where we need to, that we may honor you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So last Sunday, we began looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and um, we ended up entertaining some questions as to, all right, how do these things apply? So for instance, in the first uh, five verses, he's dealing with the issue of apostasy. He's dealing with those who have walked in the way and yet have departed from it. And again, that idea of, of apostasy is not uh, an accidental drifting. It's, it's the idea, it's similar to the word that we have for repentance. It is to, it's, it's to change, it's to turn away from. It's a very intentional thing to where one turns away from the truth. And then Paul begins to instruct Timothy as to here is what a good minister of the gospel looks like. Here are his characteristics. And, and you begin to see that there are some opposites with these men who have turned aside to a different gospel, to something that is, um, I'm going to use something with air quotes here, a different truth. Now, hopefully that made your skin crawl a little bit. Because the idea that there are different brands of truth with the air quote indicates that that's a very postmodern view, isn't it? You have your truth and I have my truth. God would look at that very differently. God would say that there is a truth and that truth is what I determine it to be. Not you. Not individuals. And so, again, this is highlighting the danger of departing from sound, good, or healthy. Both of those words are translated sound, and we've seen them both in this book, of what is right doctrine. When you cast away from that, you have no control over exactly how far you go. All the thing, all that you're going to be able to determine with, uh, with certainty is you're off course. Because you've set, you've, you've cast away, you've changed direction from the, the path that God has laid out. And so we, we went through and we looked at, um, we've begun to look at the characteristics of the good servant. He's one who confronts error. He has a good spiritual diet. He doesn't eat spiritual junk food. He doesn't get sucked into things that... Um, are going to take him away. Rather, he is disciplined for godliness. And that word discipline there is the word from which we get gymnasium or gymnastics. It's, it's, it's one who is exercised. He is spiritually exercised. You forego some things in order to be able to stay on course and on target. And this morning, let's pick up in verse 10. Starting in verse 9, it's, this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, and this is going back up to talk about the idea of godliness is profitable for all things. Verse 10, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, verse 10 is going to be the first uh, verse where there are different uh, interpretations of what Paul has just said. The other place that we're going to run into this is going to be in verse 16. 
And so it's going to deal with the idea of what is it to be a savior. And in verse 16, what does it mean to ensure salvation? Both of those are related to, um, in fact, let me check something real quick and make sure that I am accurate on something. not, so I'm going to be quiet about it. The one who labors is one who works to the point of exhaustion. That's that idea of, of he's, this person is engaged and he stays at it. It's not something that he dabbles with. He, he is laboring to the point of exhaustion, striving has the idea of to engage in a struggle. So when you look at these, um, those are um, not passionate, but they are uh, intense words. This is not someone who is um, playing with something. This isn't a hobby. This is something where this is focused attention and it is, I'm going to put everything that I need to put into this in order to make it happen in order to accomplish it. There's a sense of urgency in this man's work. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Think about people that we have known, you have known, who enjoy a title, but don't necessarily want to work and carry on that position. They enjoy it, but they don't really work at it. Versus others, and I can think of many who have labored here over the years, who have, um, it, never, it never turns off. I, I don't know if you were aware, um, the, the pastors that we have had here over the years, the example that they have set, um, I can guarantee you for them, Sunday was not a day of rest. The problem was neither was Saturday or Friday or any of the other days of the week. These guys were supposed to have Mondays off, and yet consistently they would be involved in things on Monday and a good part of Monday. And that goes for Saturday as well. And so it didn't they labored, and they strove. We still have men who do that. Now, the idea here of being the Savior, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So, this idea of being a Savior, what does that mean? Is that talking, is that saying that God saves for eternity as in every person on the planet is going to be in heaven. Is that what this means? When he is the savior of all men. And I see a bunch of heads shaking no. So how is it that you can have a statement which is apparently a pretty broad brush in a very, you know, pointed statement, then how is God the Savior of people who ultimately are not redeemed? That is not a rhetorical question. If you were shaking your head no, you should be able to have a response to that question. Common grace. Okay, Ed, talk to me about common grace. That's pretty good. 
Okay, so the idea here, what Ed was talking about, is that um, there are things that God commonly shares with all men. Uh, if you look, if, if we want to bring back, uh, God causes the, the rain to fall, right, on the just and the unjust. Now, what do our sins rightly deserve? Judgment, right? When? Now. If God were truly just, as, boy, I tell you what, if God followed our recipe for justice, who would stand? That was the psalmist, right? Lord, if you would mark iniquity, who could stand? But there is great, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Psalm 130. So the idea is that God does not bring immediate and warranted judgment on sinful men. The sun rises on them just as much as it rises on the redeemed. There are many common things that unbelievers, there are graces that they receive that are very much the same as those that are for believers. And so in this regard, God can be the savior of all. He is being patient with those who are unredeemed. He is giving them time. Now, the, there's a benefit to time, and there is a curse for time, right? The benefit may be that here's a person who rejects, 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 and, and, and God brings him to his senses or her to her senses, and they are redeemed. And his patience for them has led to their redemption. Time has been a blessing for them. Time can also be a curse because the longer I reject God's truth, when I if that person stands before God in judgment, what does God bring to him? You were given all of these opportunities and you spurned me and continued to reject me. And so it, again, it, re, it results in further what? Condemnation. In Isaiah 55, God says, you know, my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it to, right? Sometimes that is for redemption. Other times that is for condemnation. So when a, when, a, when a person rejects God's word, God's word has not failed. It has not failed. It will then turn and stand to condemn. And so if you look in, let's, let's look at a couple of these. Flip in your, keep your finger in 1 Timothy. We'll be back there shortly. So flip over to Matthew chapter 5. So Matthew 5, 45 Go back to verse 44. Well, actually, go back to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Ezekiel 18.4 and 18.32, that's where you're going to see the soul of the soul of him who sinned. Let me just go back. Let's just go back. Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins shall die. Right? Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well of the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Now, in the same chapter. Again, going back on how people view God in the Old Testament as this, you know, aloof uh, cosmic judge who is just full of wrath. The soul who sins will die. Now go down to verse 32. 
For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. The holy God who has been offended by our arrogance and by our pride and by our rebellion, yet he says he takes no pleasure in their death. I don't think I would have that response. Do you? Would you? And so, again, God is merciful and God is compassionate even to those on whom he will ultimately have condemning wrath. That is another potential way to explain that. So the question is, is there another way of looking at this? Could it mean that he is going to be the savior of all kinds of people? Now, there, there is some, uh, there's certainly some corroboration for that, right? Because in Revelation, we see that there are going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation that are going to be redeemed. And so that is another way that you could potentially, you know, see that, that um, there's nobody who is isolated. There's nobody who is um, ethnically rejected from being able to be redeemed. Andrew? Okay, so the question is, is that word used in the, in the way that we see Savior? That's what I was looking at. That's what I was trying to look at real quickly to see if it was sozo or soter. And it's soter uh, from which we get soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Well, okay, again, the idea is, is that um, that goes back to what Ed was talking about with common grace. You are given, understand that, again, sometimes the, the way that this word is used has to do with the idea of deliverance. So, for instance, uh, in the Old Testament, when we had the judges, the judges were those who did what for Israel? was the first thing that they would do. They delivered them from their enemies. And then they would be God's point man for the country for the rest of their life. And then they would die. And then the whole cycle would begin again. And so part of the idea here is, is the one of being, of being delivered. Now, again, um, for us for salvation, have we been delivered? Well, yes, we have been delivered. If, if a man is in, if, or if a person is in Christ, they are a new creature, they are no longer subject to the penalty of sin. In that way, they have been completely delivered. Yet, they have not been finally delivered, right? I am free from the penalty of sin, that is settled and done. Have I been delivered from the power of sin? I am being delivered from the power of sin. What happens in the heart of a person who is redeemed? What, what changes fundamentally at the moment of salvation? A person who is, not, who is not redeemed, what power over, you know, are they under sin's power? Yes. In fact, what's the term that would be used to describe? They are slaves of sin. Right? They don't have the ability to say no to that. They're a slave of sin. Yet, when a person is redeemed, 
what fundamental change occurs. I have been a slave of sin, but now I have been set free from being a slave of sin to become a slave of righteousness. God gives me the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. And so I am, that, that exists. Now, can I continue? Can I sin? Can I still sin? Yeah, I can. And I do. There's a day when that will end. And the day will come when I'm going to be delivered, so will you. Anybody who is in Christ will be delivered from the presence of sin. We will no longer have anything. And I think that's one of the things that I look forward to most, frankly, in heaven. There is no discontentment in heaven. I wonder what that's going to be like. Did that answer your question? Okay, again, these are, this is one of these things that you've got to wrestle through. We're going to run into this in 16. I hope we're going to get to verse 16 today. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Now, what does it mean to prescribe? Okay, so I just heard Ed, the English teacher, come forward with three great synonyms. Command, instruct, Direct. All right, so the idea here, and, and the word really does have the, 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 uh, the connotation of to command. These are not divine suggestions. The instruction to be holy as I am holy is not, you know, this is something that's kind of nice to do. God doesn't work that way. That is a divine command. And so as Timothy is teaching these things, he, these are commands from God. So if you're a leader, if you're a pastor, you had better be diligent about laboring and striving. You'd better be. There's no excuse for a lazy pastor. Now that actually can continue down to us as well, right? There is no uh, spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card for being a lazy dad. Dads, God holds us accountable for what happens in our families. That buck stops with you, with me. In places where you have positions of influence, God holds you accountable for that. Order, command. Teaching is the idea of instruction, and that can be formal or informal. So to this morning is more formal, right? I'm standing up here uh, doing most of the talking. But this can also be uh, sitting around the breakfast table. It can be uh, driving in the car. You know, those are times that are more informal, but the idea is, is that these things are always being put forward. And again, divine suggestions. They're not divine suggestions. They're more along the lines of royal decrees. Now, Americans uh, fight against that to some degree. Now, don't we? Culturally, we fight against that. Because what do Americans in general favor? Independence. Does God favor our independence? No, he doesn't. Because there's not a man alive. In fact, there's never been a man alive who was truly independent. He was either a slave to sin or he was a slave to righteousness. 
Either way, he's a what? He's a slave. He keeps going. Prescribe and teach these things. Now, Timothy, here's some stuff that's going to be very specific to you. By the way, last week when, when Charles was preaching, and he talks about in 1 Peter, how he, he looked at those and he said, all of the yous in 1 Peter are what? Y'alls, right? Because they're, they're second person or third person, but they are plural. So he's speaking to a group. When you look here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, these are all yous. These are Timothy, this is you. Second person, singular. So he's talking to Timothy. And Timothy, here is one that you're to do. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now this word youthful um, has the idea of being under the age of 40. If you were under the age of 40, you were a young guy. So as I'm looking around the room in here, uh, we don't necessarily have a lot of youthful people. Most of us would fall into the category of older. Some of us would fall into the category of just straight old. <laughs> hey, look, I fall into that category anymore. Carolyn hates it when I say that. Don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. So don't give anybody an excuse to disregard what you say because of how you act. That's the bottom line to that. Don't give the don't possess the attitude and don't even look like you have the thing of because I'm young, therefore I am inexperienced and therefore that kind of gives me a little bit of a get out of jail free card regarding my conduit. My conduct, conduit, where did that come from? Thomas Brooks wrote, example is the most powerful rhetoric. Now, what's rhetoric? It's speech, right? So the most powerful, and rhetoric is intended to be persuasive speech. It's not just blabbing. It is persuasive speech. The most persuasive speech is a redeemed life. That is the most persuasive speech. Lead by example. We, uh, we've talked about before, what is really the, the, the key ingredients of leadership? The key ingredients of leadership. It's influence. It's example. What have the false teachers been doing? Are they leading by example? What have they been accused of? Talking out of both sides of their mouth, right? Timothy, you don't have the ability to do that. And so he's going to go through here and, and listen to these. See if you categorize these things. Are these things that he is or are these things that he does? Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Speech is everyday speech. Now, what does speech include? Don't look at your notes. What does speech include? Why is it if you really want to talk to somebody about something serious, you don't do it over the phone? Why is that? I'm sorry? Body language. Body language. Absolutely. Most of us in here, in fact, do, 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 do. Okay. Just about everybody in here is a parent. Anybody who's been a parent can be a good interrogator. Why is that? Because we get lots of practice with our kids. Can you tell when your kid is lying to you? 
you know, when I was taught how to interrogate people, I did that at one point in my life. You, you look for, it's not for one thing. You're looking for clusters. All of a sudden, somebody does this. They act this particular way in normal conversation. And all of a sudden, you start asking the good questions, and they start doing something entirely different. Now, my mentor, Cluzo, would say that was a clue. When you're looking at somebody, you can get the idea of how they're responding. It's not just body language, though. It's tone. It's word choice. It's inflection. It's all of these things where I'm communicating all kinds of things. So, for instance, I am full of the joy of the Lord. Why is it that many of you are smiling? Do you not agree with what I said? And if not, why not? Did I look joyful? Did I sound joyful? So what am I really saying? The point here, Timothy, you speak in such a way, number one, you use right terms. You don't talk gutter. This would be another version of let no unwholesome word proceed forth out of your mouth. And that word unwholesome meaning what? Anybody remember the, the, the other more uh, uh, direct translation of unwholesome? How about putrid? Because that is the sense of the word. It's rotten, it's stinky, it smells. You walk outside and you smell an animal that's been laying there for about three weeks. That doesn't smell nice, right? There's a very pungent odor to that. That's the idea of that kind of speech. Timothy, you don't talk that way. You speak in such a way that is winsome. We're going to run into that in chapter 5 as to how you deal with other people. You speak in a winsome fashion. You use words that are appropriate. You use them in a tone that is appropriate. You can say the very same words, but you can use a tone that has an entirely different meaning, right? And so with your speech, you're to show yourself an example. With your conduct, does your life match your message? Do you practice do as I say, not as I do? Now, that's a tall order, all right, especially for someone who is proclaiming God's word. Because the fact of the matter is, as much as it pains me to say so, my life does not always match what God's word says because I am still a sinner. I still am. The, the point is, when you fall short, what's your response to that? If the response is, you know what, that's just the way God made me, that's just the way I am, I, that doesn't cut it, right? I don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card in any way, shape, or form when it comes to sin as far as for me being able to perpetuate it. We're going to run into that when it comes to pastors later in this book. How do you deal with a pastor who continues in sin? There's a prescription for that. So your conduct, you aren't, no hypocrisy. You're not allowed that. Loving is on the horizontal plane. So the idea here that in your speech, in your conduct, in love, how do I deal with other people? Am I looking that, am I a giver or am I a taker? Is this about you or is this about me? 
if you live in such a way to where it's about me, then that's not loving. The idea here of love is, is not just uh, having... Uh, loving here, you're putting a premium on the other person. You're putting a premium on what they need, not on what I need. So here, this is on the... This is on the horizontal, on a horizontal plane. Faith is going to be on the vertical plane. Timothy, you're to model what it is to exhibit faith. So, when you're dealing with difficulty, are you whining about it? If I'm consistently whining and complaining and grumbling about my circumstances, is that exhibiting faithfulness? Is that exhibiting faith? No, it's not. Who works all things after the counsel of his own will? I thought that would be an easy question. God does. So when I find myself in a particular situation, why am I there? Because God wants me there. If I'm dealing with difficult people, God's brought them across my path. If God has given me a difficult child, God's put that child there. So, what's my response to be? You see, when we take, when, when we bring ourselves under, all right, <laughs> when we read about Job, we get to go behind the scenes immediately, right? So we get to see, you know, here comes Satan and he comes in and you have this dialogue back and forth and what about Job and I only serves you because you treat him well. Well, okay, fine. I'm going to withdraw my hand. I'm going to give you some limitations. Get out of here. Job doesn't know any of that. All he knows is that one day he loses everything that he has, including all of his kids. And what does Job do? Naked I came. Naked I'll return. God has given. God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job did not sin with his mouth. And Satan's not done, right? He goes back and he gets round two. And so now Job is reduced. He's sitting over here on the ground, scraping himself with some, you know, some busted pottery to try to get some relief from all the boils that he's got from head to toe. He has no idea why those things have happened. None. And yet, boy, when you read Job, and you see some of the things that he says? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him? The worms eat my body, yet in my flesh I will see God. Pretty advanced theology for an old guy. And so again, here you have faith takes God at his word when he says, I cause all things to work together for good for those who love me. I'm working all things after the counsel of my own will. When he tells Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need to be free of this thing that I've brought into your life. And remember, what was Paul's response to that? Most gladly, therefore, the thing that he just prayed three times to be freed from, and God's told him, no, you're not going to get free. 
you get to have my grace. Then most gladly, therefore, will I rejoice in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay? I don't need to be away from this. I don't need to be freed from this. I need to focus on the grace that God is going to give me so that I can go and do as I should in the face of this. That's faith, Timothy. Model faith. You're in a difficult place. You're in a difficult church. You have a difficult assignment. Have faith in the God that you serve and model that. He's to model it in purity, and this is the idea of sexual purity. Don't fall prey to sexual temptation. He's going to get into that in the next chapter as well. So when you look at that and you see, Timothy, you need to be faithful in speech, conduct, faith, love, faith, and purity. What general category can you put those exhortations into? Timothy, what are you focusing on in order to be faithful in those five areas? What are each of us as Christians supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be pursuing something. Personal holiness. That's a demonstration of pursuing personal holiness. When you are dealing with these areas, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're to do. And so you be, you be focused on your own personal holiness. But that's not all. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Now, the idea of public reading, the word public, you'll notice, is italicized because it's provided. But it is the idea of the word. The idea of the word is reading so that others would be able to hear. It's reading aloud. Now, why would that be an issue, especially for Timothy? How many people have got, a, how many people have got one of these in their hand in Timothy's day, in Paul's day? Very, very, very few, right? When you went to the synagogue, the synagogue would have the scrolls where they could go and they could read. Most people didn't have those. And if they did, they might have a few. Nobody had an entire collection. And what's happening right now in Paul's day? The New Testament is being written. He's writing a good portion of it. That hasn't entirely been collected, and so they don't have this. In fact, when you see in some of his letters, I think it was in uh, Colossians, where it talks about when you get this, you send it over to this other church and you have them read it. It was a letter. So how is that going to be done? Well, they would have a meeting kind of like this. And someone would stand up and say, we got a letter from Paul. So let's read this letter from Paul, which is kind of what we've been doing in this class, isn't it? Because we're reading a letter from Paul. We're just not reading the letter. We, we did read the letter, right? And now we're trying to flesh it out. So the idea here was, you be faithful to the text. This is what God says. And so that is the word that you speak. You speak the words that God speaks. Exhortation is the idea of, here's what God has said, and here's what you need to do in order to follow what it is that God has said. That's the idea of exhortation. Now, there's another place, that the, the parakaleo, there's another place where you see that word used a lot. What branch of ministry would you expect to be dominated by that term, Exhortation. What is there something that a lot of pastors end up doing as a part of their ministry? Pardon me? Counseling. That's exhortation. So counseling is what? Here's what God's word says, and now here's how we apply the principles of God's word to the situation that you are in. 
And so here's what you, here are some things that you can do in order to take these principles and apply them to, the, to your circumstances. That's exhortation. Teaching is the idea of instruction. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. So here's how, that we can understand it. So for instance, when you go back to the book of Nehemiah, the exiles have returned from Babylon. They're in Jerusalem, and they build a platform. And it was tall enough so that a, a, a bunch, as in thousands of people, would be able to see who's up here on this platform. And Ezra gets up on that platform, and he begins to read the law. While Ezra is reading the law, there are people scattered throughout the crowd. There are Levites scattered throughout the crowd who are there to be able to give a sense of what it means. So here, Ezra is declaring God's word, and scattered around here are Levites who can say, okay, now, you hear what he just said. Now, here's what this means. Here's what it means for us, and here's how it applies now to how we're going to act or how we need to act. That's the idea of teaching, giving the sense. That's what good preaching ought to do, by the way. Good preaching ought to incorporate these different facets. Here's what it says. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. And here's what it means for us. There's the so what. How am I to respond to this? And so you should have teaching and you should have exhortation. So his ministry is focused on God's word. That, that course is set. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And so this is the idea here of the good minister fulfills his mission. Now this idea here of do not neglect is do not be careless. Do not be flippant. You are in a position where you are to care for the souls of men. That is a serious task. Don't be flippant with that. And so be careful. Don't be careless. So here's the, here's the negative. Do not neglect the spiritual gift. So don't be careless. The spiritual gift, this is actually the word from which we get our word, charisma. The charismata, this is the spiritual gift. This is the, the ability, the special place that God has given you, the special talents that God has given you to be able to function and to be your part, your body part in the body of Christ, the church. Every, every person who is redeemed is gifted and he is gifted for use within the local assembly in which he or she is a member. Every person in here has a place where they uniquely fit. Now, Timothy was not, not normal. Okay, I, I got to tell you. Um, do I have a spiritual gift? Yes. Given to me by God for God's purpose. It's not about me, right? So when you look into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, your spiritual gift is not about you. Your spiritual gift is, you, is given you for the, for the edification of others. That's why you have it. That's why you should be about using it, right? Now, Timothy, um, his was not necessarily something that was normally... Uh, receive. So as you go through, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So, uh, Timothy, yours was more public. Don't get wigged out by that. That was what God did to for Timothy. Now, why might God have done that for Timothy? What's the sense that you get from how Paul is, is writing to Timothy? Is Timothy? Does Timothy walk into a room and take over? 
No, that's not him. He tends to be more timid. And so is he going to, and again, can you see how this would be something that's difficult for him? He's coming into a church where there are a lot of older people. He's coming into a church where there is doctrinal dissension. And somebody needs to step up and say, thus saith the Lord, and stick to it, and teach it, and model it, and live it. And Timothy, that person is you. So can you see how for someone who is, by nature, a little more withdrawn, a little less assertive, can you see how your gift was, was actually identified in a very public way? Timothy, there were witnesses. Why is it that we say, quote unquote, when you go to a wedding, it talks about there being witnesses? Why is that important? Again, not rhetorical. Okay, to hold them accountable. You make promises in a wedding. Now, I seem to remember once upon a time, and it's starting to get to be a little bit of a long time ago now. It'll be 36 years in May. But I seem to remember that there were some promises made. There were promises made by me. There were promises made by my wife. It's helpful sometimes, isn't it? When there are other people who could say, you know what, I did hear you say once upon a time that you were going to do such and such. You did promise that. Are you sticking to your word? That's the same idea here. Timothy, this was very public. There are plenty of people who saw it. Now, stick to it. Does it go against your nature? Sometimes. God's not worried about your nature. You're not, being, you're not being commanded to be faithful to, you know, how you are. You are to be faithful to my word, and you'd better be faithful to what I've given you to be able to carry it out. So, here's one again. Now, here's one where we can stand under the microscope. What is your gift? Are you using it? That's not a rhetorical question. That is a rhetorical question, excuse me. That one is rhetorical. I don't want you to answer that, but I do want you to put yourself under the microscope. Am I fulfilling my role in God's body? Timothy, you are to do that. And in fact, it's not something that is just lackadaisical. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. So now, look, don't neglect. Don't be careless. And in fact, what are you to do? You are to be careful. You are to watch this. You are to pay attention to this. Take pains with these things. The idea of, of uh, you'll see absorbed is, is in italics. Because the idea is be in them. It's, it's the idea of be consumed in them. Don't be disengaged in them. This is something that is premeditated. What is premeditation? Where's the, where's the word that you typically hear with, with premeditated? What's the idea? What, what, what act is often referred to with the, the term premeditated? Murder. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, forethought. I planned this out. There's no such thing as an accidental firebomb. No such thing. If you made one, 
you were intending to make one because that ain't normal. That's not normal behavior. Premeditated, it's planned out. You actually put thought into this. That's the idea here of being careful. Take pains. Why? So that your progress will be evident to all. It's expected. Timothy's a young guy. Does he know everything? No. Is he running into situations that are unanticipated? Absolutely. A lot of stuff he's dealing with in real time on the fly. Boy, it's hard when you're having to deal with things in real time on the fly, isn't it? When it's in real time, you don't have the luxury. Yesterday I spent a couple of hours looking at, a, at some video. The one time, I don't get this very often, it's the one time when I've got a surveillance camera that's actually pointed in the right direction. And we can go through and it's recording in real time. It's not motion activated. <laughs> so I can see guys, people walking through and I can see what they are doing. And it is so nice to be able to go through and, 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 and be able to go through and follow all of that. Real time is difficult. You're having to do with things in the here and now. When, when, when an individual in the span of five seconds walked from point A to point B, I can play that back. I can play it on quarter speed. I can do all kinds of things to be able to go back and forth, you know, and be able to see exactly what's going on. How long did the actual event take? Five seconds, because that's what it took to walk from here to here. When you're counseling in real time, that's not necessarily something that's easy to do. In fact, it's not. Timothy, you're going to have to deal with things in real time. And you're going to, sometimes you're going to make mistakes. So, learn from them. I think I've told you my father had a temper. Over the course of years, I watched the work of the Holy Spirit in my dad. And I watched that change. His growth was evident to people who knew him, who knew him for a long time. So Timothy, you're to be that way. Your growth should be evident. Your spiritual maturity should be evident. Your pursuit of holiness should be evident and the, and the corresponding change in your life and how you speak and how you act and how you relate to people, all of those things. People should be able to see the, the sanctifying work of Christ in your life. They should be able to see that. And then finally, pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your pursuit of holiness. Again, focused attention. Not accidental, not occasional closely monitored in a perpetual state of readiness. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So, here's a nice summary statement for Timothy. Because again, Timothy, you need to be about your pursuit of holiness and you need to make sure that you are holding to sound doctrine. That when the words out of your mouth thus saith the Lord, is because that's what God said, not a modification or a change in what God actually said. So again, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. We'll hit it and we'll finish it up next week. What does it mean Persevere in these things, again, epi-mone, hupo-mone, 
is the idea, is the word from which we get patience, to remain under. Epimone is under, excuse me, remain, and it's at. This is something you stick at it. That's the idea of perseverance here. Again, not a one, not a one-time wonder. This is something you you're paying close attention to yourself. You're paying close attention to your doctrine, and you stay on that. For as you do so, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, so does that mean Timothy? you can ensure your own salvation. Timothy, you can ensure salvation for those who hear you. Okay, I got some heads nodding no, or excuse me, shaking heads, not nodding, shaking. Here again, we need to look at the word that's being used. This word here being translated ensure salvation is the word sozo. It's used 102 times in the New Testament. It is, in, it is translated ensure salvation exactly one time here. The word save, sozo, is often used in the New Testament for being, for being delivered or rescued from some peril. So sometimes it's from sickness. Sometimes it is from some danger. The word is used at least twice directly. Once it's used by Jesus, referring to himself, and another time it's used about Jesus. In fact, we'll flip to the right a little bit. Look over at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he, referring to Jesus, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So did Jesus require salvation? What's the term here? What, what, how is that word to save from death? What's the idea of that? He was being what? Say it again. Okay, but the idea of being saved from death, the idea is being rescued. The idea is being delivered. What is the, uh, you know what, it's five after, and I've actually got, just so I can warn you for next week, all right, when we come back to this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Seventeen warnings about danger in the book of First Timothy. So the idea here of the word, and we'll get into it and we'll flesh it out next week. This idea is about being delivered from danger. And what is the danger that is most commonly referred to in First Timothy? Come on, what's he warning about? False doctrine. Getting sucked away, getting turned away from the truth. Timothy, you pay attention to your pursuit of holiness. You pay attention to holding on to sound doctrine. And you're going to deliver yourself because you'll stay on the straight and narrow. And you'll deliver those who hear you. Because you'll be leading them down the straight and narrow. That's the idea. We'll flesh it out a little more next week. <laughs> Lord, it's um, your word is sufficient. Your word is authoritative. It's, it, it has everything that we need in it. And here we've spent the last hour trying to unpack a few verses. Because, you're, it, because your word is authoritative, it speaks to all the areas of our lives in which we need to be making sure that we are conforming to you and to your word. 
to what it is that you require of us. And Father, I pray that as we consider these things, that we would take them to heart, that we would be absorbed and mindful and continually watchful in our own lives about our pursuit of holiness, of, of being in line with your word. And Lord, that we would take care, that we would be careful with what we believe to be true. That again, it would fall in line with what you have said to be true. And that we would resist the temptation to soften it, to, uh, to modify that, to satisfy some other scratch, some other itch. And Lord, we live in a day where there is much turning aside from, from what you've said to be true. Some of it's very obvious. Some of it's not very obvious. Help us to be discerning that we would be able to, to recognize error, that we would be able to recognize the, the wiles of the accuser of our souls and that we would be able to withstand him because we are protected by your truth. Help us to be diligent in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.